Dig those funky bell bottoms. <laughs> Amazing, man. She's just like you. I am not. I'm nothing like her. See what I mean? Honey, you are no more like me than I am like my mother. <laughs> oh, God. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. Amy, what is the trope and or cliche we are discussing today? Old friends, new trouble. Yeah, that's a pretty succinct way to put it. Uh, we're talking about those episodes where somebody from the past shows up and... Uh, Maybe uh, maybe our character's relationship with them is not exactly what they remembered it to be. Uh, what's our lineup? What are the episodes we're so talking about? So our lineup, we're starting 1962, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Season 1, Episode 30, The Return of Happy Spangler. Then we're moving forward in time to Roseanne, uh, Season 2, Episode 16, Born to be Wild, Sister, Sister, Season 4, Episode 7, Boy from the Hood, and Scrubs, Season 2, Episode 22, My Dream Job. That's right. So let me ask you, have you had the experience of somebody from the past showing up in your life again, or maybe reconnecting with somebody and finding that, you know, the relationship wasn't what it used to be, or that, you know, the experience was different maybe than you were expecting? I feel like the answer is yes, but not in like I couldn't I can't tell you any specific instance, but I definitely can relate to that feeling of having this like these sort of idea of like worlds collide. You know, I I'm I've moved away from my hometown multiple times and have lived in many places around the world and it's always a little bit of like a culture clash when my friends from different parts of my life or different times in my life, different eras of Amy, as it were, mm -hmm. <laughs> end up meeting each other. And usually it's like for the good. Usually it's one of those like, oh, man, did you know Amy used to do this? No way. She's so crazy. She does that. Blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, odd man out. Like, oh, great. They're going to tell stories about crazy Amy. Um, new and old friends. But no, I mean, I definitely have had that experience where I've been excited to introduce a new friend to an old friend and the old friend didn't quite like, well, it didn't quite like live up to my memory sure. <laughs> of like the way that we used to be. And I think more of it has to do with just like the nostalgia of it, right? Like we, you know, we pedestalize, what's the word that I'm looking for? Yeah, like idolize. Yeah, we or romanticize. yeah, romanticize the old old times. And as we see in this episode or in these episodes, that people grow and change. And it doesn't mean that what you had or what you were wasn't great but it doesn't necessarily jive with who you are now. Yes, I think embracing change is going to be a common theme here. The idea of sort of loyalty and sentimentality 
can be good, but maybe shouldn't be the top priority. I was thinking this is another one kind of like our class reunions thing where social media sort of plays into the modern version of this because there's a lot of people I can think of from my past that I haven't necessarily reconnected with in um, IRL, as they say, (laughs) but they show up on Facebook or whatever, and their their whole persona and their whole public-facing deal is not at all how you remembered. And I can think of a handful of examples from, you know, from childhood, from jobs I used to know where it's like, oh boy, you know, I'm now I'm kind of glad that that person only exists as a little blip on my Facebook feed instead of real life. But yeah, I think this was one where there were a lot of individual aspects of these stories that I related to a lot, even if I haven't had this particular experience of somebody showing up from the old days and, you know, stirring up uh, angst. And they stir up angst we're going to see in several different ways. Some of it is just, you know, oh, hey, the characters that we know aren't like they used to be and the friend character is frustrated with them. And then sometimes the characters themselves are wishing they were more like they used to be, but have good reason for growing and changing. And still, you know, there's benefits to both. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's start on Dick Van Dyke. Uh, This was a big show for me as a kid in the old Nick at Night days. Um, For some reason, they were showing this on Nickelodeon at a time that just matched up with some of my after school or after homework TV watching time. And I used to love this show. I think that Mary Tyler Moore on this show was probably the first adult celebrity that I had a crush on. You know, that was the first time I had a crush on someone in TV that wasn't like Kelly from Saved by the Bell or somebody that was like an actual woman. Well, and her story in this show is that she lied about her age. She said she was older so she could get on this show because she's quite young. Sure. She was 24 in the first season and she had to lie and say she was older so that she would be cast as Dick Van Dyke's wife in 1961. Yeah. This is also a show about the behind the scenes goings on of a TV show. So this is a predecessor to Larry Sanders and 30 Rock and all of those kinds of shows. And I definitely loved that, even as old-timey as it was. I really liked seeing these scenes of the TV writers batting around ideas and stuff. So yeah, I actually have kind of a lot of nostalgia for the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, I I don't have as much nostalgia. I definitely watched it same as you on like the Nick at Night kind of thing. For me, what this show was was I was a huge Mary Poppins fan. And so when I saw this funny guy from Mary Poppins on another TV show, I was like, well, I want to watch that. That's going to be great. And he's very funny. And this episode did not disappoint. We get all of his like great physical comedy in a bit that he's written for the show within the show. So it's re- it was yeah. a great showcase <laughs> for Dick Van Dyke of his all of his wonderful physical comedy. Sure. It reminds me um, why I liked Steve Martin. Uh-huh. Well, let's talk about uh, the Dykster for a second here, because this, uh, now, you know what? I'm not comfortable with having said that. Let's talk about Dick Van Dyke for a second here. Uh, 
He was a sort of classic song and dance man, right? Like you said, right. he was in Mary Poppins and a handful of other movies, long story career, Bye Bye Birdie is another one. So this has got to be not the very first, but one of your first The So-and-So show, right? Where we're going to you know, build a sitcom around this lovable personality. Yeah, you had these kind of like variety type shows. You had I Love Lucy. Right, that were built out of the um, whatever, you know, a former radio show or a vaudeville act or these song and dance, you know, traveling comedian kind of people. I think this was different in that it was he was a writer in a writer's room and he had a family. And so this was a sitcom that was built out of the, you know, what you would think of would be a normal, like, Oh, song and dance, man, give him a variety show. And he had those too. Um, I think Carl Reiner, who was the writer, you know, showrunner or whatever of the show, pulled this group together and said, we're going to, we're going to do a behind the scenes look at what it is to be in a writer's room. And that was kind of that. And then you needed some more, right? You got to have a family. You got to have some heart. You got to give them uh, the audience something to tune into. But yeah, they, uh, Carl Reiner's whole thing was that this was going to be five seasons. And and if it, if it makes it to five seasons, that's great. But that's all we're doing. Yeah. And you see the start of that impulse that we were talking about when we talked about the Andy Griffith show and we were like, oh yeah, this is all about let's turn back the clock. Let's have nice, easygoing country bumpkin living. Now we're starting to get that impulse of, hey, wherever you are in the country, you're probably curious about what it's like to live in the big city and write for a TV show. And, you know, we're, we're starting to get that modern metropolitan feel, you know, when we were talking about the Honeymooners, and I was saying, oh, God, it feels like it's the first TV show everywhere. Now, this feels much more modern. Like, no, this, it's in black and white, and the styles are different and all that, but this feels like a normal show that I could see myself watching at some time in this century. Right. And this was the last TV show to have to have it filmed entirely in black and white, 1965 or four, or whenever this ended, um, 1965. The next year, that's when television was, it was, you know, by law, just like, remember when they, everything had to go HD by like 20, mm -hmm. you know, what whatever it was, like 2010 or 2005 or whatever the cutoff was, everything had to be HD. This was the same, 1960. 65, after that, everything had to be in color. So had they gone for a sixth season, they would have been. And the other thing that they do in this is that they really, they don't use 1960s slang or slang of the time, and they don't talk about current events. So even though they're not trying to do the Andy Griffith thing of like, let's go back in time and have this be like a show that's set in the 40s, even though it's not set in the 40s, it feels like it is. This show is is similarly staying away from anything that would date it in a certain yeah. way. Um, and it And it's trying to say look, all those fancy Hollywood people who are writers, they're just like you. They have families. They have lives, you know? Yeah. Well, because Dick Van Dyke is, uh, relatively speaking, a square. You know, this is about adults, even though they're in show business. If this is the 60s, you know, I guess it's the early 60s, so we wouldn't have a ton of counterculture or anything, but they're focusing on people who are kind of grown up and settled down. And so, yeah, we're not going to necessarily have the the ear to the pulse of youth culture 
on the Dick Van Dyke show. Right. And the counterculture would just look different, right? It would be more like turtlenecks and berets than, <laughs> than it would be the hippie but thing so that was coming later. With this particular episode, we're getting a story that sort of falls into this Venn diagram of tropes, right? Because we're focusing on the idea of somebody from your past coming back and sort of stirring things up. There's another thing with workplace shows that has to do with somebody from the old school that you sort of worshipped, bringing them back in and they don't jive anymore. So right. there was an episode of 30 Rock where Carrie Fisher played this comedy writer that Liz Lemon really looked up to, and then she sort of couldn't get on board with the limitations of the modern network TV show. There was an episode of The Office that dealt with Michael's mentor, Former mentor yeah, yeah, coming on and not jiving. So we've got sort of overlapping tropes here, but the basic thrust of this is that by chance, Mary Tyler Moore, Dick Van Dyke's wife, discovers that his old mentor slash coworker is now a Thai salesman at a men's clothing store. Yeah, he's working at the haberdashery down the street, and he is a wonderful salesman. He's got great rapport with everybody who's coming in. He's having a good time. It kind of reminds me of like, um, you know, well, you guys didn't have Walmart up here, but- It came in the 90s. In the 90s. So I just remember the joke was always like, oh, you know, yeah, so-and-so is going to retire, but he's got to get a job as a Walmart greeter because he he can't sit at home all the time and he loves sure. being around people. So that's kind of what it seemed like this guy was doing was, you know, just living out his uh, later years, having a good time. But Rob comes back into his life because, you know, he gives him, he gives, he realizes after his banter with Mary Tyler Moore that her husband is Rob Petrie. And that's who Dick Van Dyke plays in the show. And he says, Hey, you know, send him a happy hello from me. I gave him his first job and gives her the tie for free. Right. Now, I just want to pause on this for a second because, of course, these old timey shows give us these fun little time capsule things. I love these old nicknames, Happy, Whitey, you know, that one probably doesn't hold up as well. <laughs> but back in the day, you would just be like, yeah, his name is uh, Mortimer, but we called him Red or something, you know, like they just had these nicknames that did not correspond to people's names, right? And Happy- Well, we get that later on in Roseanne too, with Ziggy and Yop. Yeah. But or Happy or whatever. was one of those, isn't one of the sons in- Death of a salesman called Happy. It just, I, it's, it's got oh, like an old timey so. vibe. To that me. rings a bell. Happy yes. and Biff, right? The guy's name is Happy Spangler, which just sounds fun to say. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he calls him Hap. And um, Dick Van Dyke comes back down to the haberdashery, which is another amazing word, and says, Hey, you know, I, I would love to try and get you back into the biz if you're interested. And he seems, not really interested. He yeah. This, well, this guy has, interestingly, a lot of self-awareness, right? From the start. Oh, yes. He's not like, oh, great, this is the chance I need. He's explaining, like, look, a confluence of circumstances kind of ended my career, right? He had a divorce. Did he get shipped off to war or something? No, his wife died. Okay. And then he moved to Switzerland to we like- watched this like less than an hour ago. <laughs> That's where my brain is at. Continue. His wife died and then he moved to Switzerland to, you know, ostensibly get away from things, process whatever, whatever. And he had been a 
radio writer. He'd been like a comedy writer for a radio show. And when he moved back to the States and was like, all right, I'll get back into it. They had moved on from radio and TV had become the thing. Right. And the TV guys were like, you don't write for our medium. You've been out of the, you know, been out of it for so long. And so he didn't really, and he was getting older. So he didn't really have a place. So he just said, ah, okay, I guess that part of my life's over. I'll go and do this other thing. Instead. Yeah. He's pretty resigned and pretty like accepting of it. And he seems, he goes into the whole thing with this sort of understanding, like, I'm probably not a great fit for this. And Rob, Dick Van Dyke's character, has this very sort of generous attitude of like, look, if you contribute anything, it's a plus, you know, that that makes it worth it. Exactly. And uh, there was another moment of awareness that I really, I really, it really resonated with me at the end when, you know, as as foretold, Happy was not a good fit and didn't do a lot of writing when he was with the team. In fact, just told old stories that everyone right. wanted to hear and kind of kept them from doing their work. And so they were working late nights at the Petrie house because they weren't getting anything done all day. So it comes around to it that Rob's probably going to have to let him go. And when he goes to have the conversation of, you know, Hap, I'm going to need to let you go, it you know, Hap is so self-aware in that like, yeah, you're right. Did I tell too many stories? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to resign. Rob says, well, now wait a minute. There's something here. Like you've got funny in your brain and I wouldn't be a good boss if I didn't try to get it out of your brain. And, you know, we've paid you for two weeks. If nothing else, let's just sit here and kick some things around. And it turns into a really funny sketch because Rob is reworking these stories that, you know, the kind of humor that Hap likes. But what I thought was really brilliant about that was that was Rob, a boss, taking responsibility for yeah. the lack of success of one of his employees. It was him saying, you know what? I could do a better job at trying to like pull out the talent that I know is in there because I've seen it in you years and years before. And it touched my heart a little bit because that, you know, I do mentorship work. That is my work when I'm not playing fun with you. And that was such a heartwarming moment. And I wish that there were more like that. Like, when can any of us really say that we had a boss who was like, no, I see something in you and I'm going to support you until you, until it comes out of you. Yeah. And it's just smart leadership because it's it's just being solution focused and just going well this is the situation we're in now maybe it wasn't the best idea to bring you in but here we are like you said it's paid for here's here's the circumstances we find ourselves in and yeah finding the way to succeed but just to back up a second the crux of the episode is those scenes of hap coming on board right. the the writers room because Rob's colleagues, Buddy and Sally, Buddy and Sally have been skeptical from the beginning for exactly the reasons everyone keeps saying. The guy is old and sort of unattuned to this new kind of comedy, but he comes on. And what I related to about those scenes was just the social dilemma of you know, somebody going on and, and sort of uh, distracting the conversation when, when you're supposed to be focusing on something and having to be 
the boss and keep people on track when they're sort of goofing around and stuff and not wanting to be the bad guy. That was all the kind of thing that stresses me out whenever I've been in that situation of like, yeah, yeah, okay, guys, that's yeah, yeah, Walking Dead was good last night, but come on, we need to work on this thing, you know, and just trying to get people to focus. So I really related to that. And yeah, it's a weird dynamic that the guy goes into it going, you know, are you sure you want me to be on your team? I might not be that useful. And like you said, at the end, he's very aware of how unhelpful he's been. But it's like all of these scenes in the middle when he's on the team and he's supposed to be helping, he just can't resist blathering on about the old days and distracting everybody. Yeah. And he says at the end, Hap says, I was afraid. Yeah. yeah, I kept telling these stories and and talking about old bits that we wrote because I didn't have any ideas and I was afraid that I was going to just be sitting there silent and not contributing at all. And so I purposefully talked about that stuff to sort of distract from the fact that I didn't have any new ideas. Yeah, he's basically procrastinating. But like you said, his worth ultimately or his contribution ultimately comes in the fact that he's got this sensibility First of all, I find it very quaint and funny that his whole thesis statement, Hap Spangler, is like, TV audiences are too sophisticated and civilized now, right? They've, they've, they've become so intelligent that the good old days of slapstick are over. Right. People don't want to laugh at someone getting hurt anymore, and they don't want to laugh at someone's misfortunes. So... Dick Van Dyke's character, Rob, takes that as the, the seed of an idea and writes this whole sketch for Alan Brady to do on the show. And it's a, it's ostensibly a lecture about comedy. And throughout the lecture of comedy, he just keeps hurting himself. So he's talking and um, and he is talking with a letter opener and he's like banging in against his hand and the letter opener is sharp and it cuts his hand. And then he puts it down and picks it back up and references himself and like stabs him in, right. stabs himself in the saying, chest. It's one of these things of like, we at the so-and-so show believe that humor should be sophisticated and we will not stoop to slapstick. And, and no one thinks it's funny to watch anyone get hurt anymore. Look at me. And he like points the, the letter opener at himself and then stabs himself in the chest. Yeah, and then he steps in the trash can while he's given the speech. And so it's this, you know. It's irony. Yeah, it's exactly. your sort of straight this up ironic, irony. This ironic little speech that is very funny. And, and like I said, we get a beautiful, dr long drawn out moment of seeing Dick Van Dyke at his physical comedy best. Yeah. To the point of audiences being sophisticated and slapstick going out of style. It made me think of how everything is so cyclical, mm -hmm. you know, like there was when we were young, there was that whole, you know, David Spade, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, like frat boy humor that came in and took over SNL and became like the new funny. And that was another reason to say that SNL was dead because it was just it was all this like hid humor. And then, you know, I think about students like young people now and kids now love to watch those um, don't make me laugh videos, which are, you know, or fail videos on YouTube, which are an awful lot like the 
funniest home videos that we watched when we were young. And so I just, I think about this idea that slapstick or some misfortunes of others, someone getting hurt isn't funny. I think it's only not funny in certain periods of time in your life, right? There's always going to be a 12-year-old who's going to think that that's great. And then there's always going to be the, you know, more sophisticated version of that where it's still funny, you know? Yeah, sure. But it is when you think about the idea that this character was supposedly a radio writer and he's saying, I long for the days of slapstick, like... It starts to seem a little strange. We're like, how did you do slapstick on the radio? (laughs) Well, with lots of funny sound effects. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) This one's a case of it's not any kind of a toxic person or anything like that, but it is a little bit of a recontextualization. And, you know, our main character sort of realizing that, yeah, reconnecting with this person from the past didn't go as I thought. And that, you know, he still, uh, like you said, he needed to sort of figure out a way to get the value that he wanted from Right. And what I thought was great, though, about the very, very end, you know, so Hap says, all right, well, you know, you pay me for two weeks. I'm, you know, let's do this thing. But that was still, he was still resigning. Like that was going to be the end. So he goes back to the haberdashery and Dick Van Dyke comes in you know, to say, hey, you know, that was great. I'm sorry it had to end up like this. You're doing all right here or whatever. And Hap is happy. And he says, you know, I've got my ties and I've got my typewriter. And if I come up with a good idea, I'll send it your way. And, uh, but you're going to, you know, you're going to have to pay me a pretty sum for it. And I was like, that man just invented consulting. Yeah, no, it is a pretty mega happy ending to it all. And uh, yeah, everyone's friends. Shall we move on to Roseanne? Here we go. Roseanne, this is season two, episode 16, Born to be Wild. Yes, Born to be Wild. So we begin, like Roseanne always does, with that theme sequence orbiting around the table, but they kept updating it every year. This one was a hell of an opening sequence. I did not remember all the perms in the early (laughs) years of Roseanne. I think even in the actual show already, some of them have come to their senses in the time that has passed since this opening dinner table sequence was shot. But I was floored by the styles alone uh, coming into Roseanne. Um, What's your Roseanne deal? So I've always had an iffy relationship with Roseanne. Um, My it was one that we would have on every now and then. My parents thought it was, you know, they they thought it was funny. My dad, re- I think my dad thought it was funnier than my mom. I sort of, I was very judgy of Roseanne and kind of always have been. I'm like, why would I want to watch these people who are like trashy? <laughs> And, and that, you know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't make me sound like a great person, but it is what it is. When I was younger, I was like, I don't know, I don't want to watch these people that are trashy. But my dad has a little bit of a John Goodman energy just in his like normal personality and also his big beer belly. And so I think that was the reason that it was on, you know, my, my family did watch it um, when, when I was younger. So I've seen a bit of it. Uh, it was in one of those ones, it was down the middle for me. It wasn't like, oh, I love the show. And it wasn't like, oh, I hate the show. It was just kind of on, you know, and 
truth be told, John Goodman is amazing. He's so funny in so many things. Like even in this, he had a little argument with Roseanne and like his acting chops, you can see he's really going for it. It's not, you know, it's not just a throwaway, you know, crappy King of Queens style show. No, by casting John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf, I think Roseanne had the same savvy that Seinfeld did of saying, if I'm going into this as a stand-up with some presence, but not a lot of acting skill per se. I'm going to surround myself with people who have amazing acting skills. And you mentioned Laurie Metcalf and that it's it's so telling in t- just in terms of like my own association with this show is that I didn't realize Laurie Metcalf was a good actress until I started seeing her and all these other things. Like af- long after Roseanne, she was guest starring in all of these different sitcoms and all of these different shows. And I was like, huh. Man, that aunt, whatever her name is from Roseanne, is she's really good. Yeah. And I had a similar issue where I think I probably even more so had some prejudices about this show. Uh, coming from the New York City area, I did not like that Midwestern, uh, I, w- whatever you call that aesthetic, that sort of twang in the voice, that whole way of talking and dressing. It just wasn't my world. And all of the ways that you're talking about that these characters were very much meant to be, you know, we've talked in the past about the working class sitcoms, like All in the Family and stuff. This was a step further of like, no, this is really working class. And we're going to look like people who have not been seen on television in this way before. And we're going to have a whole vibe to our appearance and our family that is very not like the families you see on TV. And yeah, I think when I was a teenager, I was kind of like, yeah, there's a reason you don't see people like this on TV. Get them out of here. But (laughs) I did know that this was really uh, respected, that Roseanne, it might be kind of odd to think about it now, but this show was considered in a weird way kind of prestigious in the way that it brought this working class mentality. And another one, like we were talking about, you know, God help us, Mr. Belvedere confronting the social issues. This was another show that did that and confronted the economic hardships and the social issues and everything going on. And so it was respected. Right. It was lauded for exactly what you're saying. They have for portraying, uh, you know, a, a like a working, like a white working class family that was struggling, right? These would be the same people today. And this is, uh, you know, coming back around to Roseanne and the in, in the later years and all the flack that the new Roseanne got. You know, those who defend Roseanne say how her entire career has been made about being that person that all of you, you know, East Coast liberals want to make fun of and look down on, as we both admit that we were doing even as teenagers. And so why are you surprised that her politics fall into the category that they fall into, right? Because this is exactly the family that we would see over time getting, um, you know, completely taken in by the whole Fox News and the populist movement that goes along with the conservative movement. And I haven't seen a ton of the new show. I've seen some of it, and it does, of course, tackle the issues of modern politics and stuff. 
Here's my hot take about Roseanne in the current world. I would love to not spend a ton of time on this. Of course, I'm not a fan of her sense of humor and all her racist bullshit that got her in trouble whenever that happened. But I do think there is a weird trying to have your cake and eat it too by continuing to put the show on the air and scrub her name from it so that, you know, when you look and see who made the show created by so-and-so, whatever, there is no evidence of Roseanne Barr or Arnold or whatever she's called ever having existed now when you watch The Connors. And I think that's a little messed up. I totally understand if the TV network is like, hey, you you made a racist joke or many racist jokes or whatever. You said something we can't stand by. You're ending the show. But I think then you have to acknowledge the show is her brainchild. All of those, as much as we love Laurie Metcalf and John Goodman, it, it was all there. It was put together by her. It was her idea. And again, I don't love that I'm here like semi defending her, but I don't like the idea of seeing that show put on as though it was immaculately conceived into the world and there was never this person, Roseanne, that created it. Yeah, well, and I hear what you're saying, and I don't necessarily think you're defending her so much as you're coming after the network for continuing the show without her. Look, you're right. She, you know, she made her mistakes and it was not, you know, it was not going to be okay for her to continue being the face of this show with that network. So then the show's over and that sucks. And, you know, you got to sue her to pay out these other contracts and do all of that stuff. But that that's the situation that you're in. And I think that you're right. You know, you can maybe try, right? There's always the impulse to try to continue a show. And I think this will probably end up being another one of our podcasts at some point, those shows that lost the main character, yes. but then tried to keep going. For example, um, Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, When John Ritter Died. Oh, so many. The Office Without Michael Scott, Happy Days Without Richie Cunningham. And um, Two and a Half Men yeah. after Charlie Sheen had his meltdown. I mean, there's tons of examples of this, of ways that you can try and move the show on once a central character goes. But the difference is those shows weren't named Roseanne. Yeah, exactly. As much as those examples, those characters are crucial and essential, it's not the same thing. It wasn't a show that that person originated. But let's go back in time now. We're back in 1980, whatever. 1990. 1990, simpler times, Roseanne, Season two, episode 16, Born to be Wild. So here we have an old friend of the Connors, right? From their old sort of rough and tumble days. Right. From high school where they were apparently part of a bicycle gang or not a bicycle, a motorcycle gang, <laughs> a bicycle gang. From high school where they were part of a motorcycle gang in high school. Um, they all had Harleys. Lord knows how in 1971, these, these working class people from working class roots were able to afford Harleys, but maybe they weren't as expensive as uh, they yeah, are now. The biker culture. I don't know. It was a thing. I, I don't know exactly how it works, but I was thinking about the finances later in the episode when they get to refurbishing. But yeah, their friend Ziggy 
what's his name? His real name is Norbert Walsh, okay. but he goes by Ziggy, another fun nickname we have. And uh, yeah, and so he comes back into town. We find out that he's got a baby mama and two kids um, back wherever he's living now, but they talked about getting married and they decided not to. So he is free to roam all around the country doing whatever he wants. He um, is in town laying fiber optic cable, which I was like, wow, 1990 laying fiber optic cable. All right, Illinois. So he's back in town and they're going to have, you know, they're going to shout out to their old high school times. Before he even comes into town, we get this um, little conversation of Roseanne you know, jumping on the couch, Dan's watching TVs, watching sports. He's completely enthralled. This was a very, this is my dad and my mom. Like they have this argument still today on a regular basis. Roseanne comes in and is like, I do something. Let's, don't you want to go out tonight? You know, you're going to sit around here all day and watch TV and watch sports. And, and he's like, yep, that's the sum of it. I'm interested in this game. That's all I want to do. And is giving like one word answers. Yep. And so Roseanne is like, ah, oh, but I just, you know, remember we used to go out, we used to have dinners, we used to do things like I want to do something. Come on, let's do something. And he's like, nope watching TV, you know, just kind of not really engaging, taking his mind off of his long work week by zoning out and watching sports. Roseanne wants to do something. And then the motorcycle pulls up in the driveway. Yeah. Ziggy literally shows up on their front door. They bring him in. He's a big, tough biker looking guy. He kind of looks like David Harbour if he went back yes, in time. I thought it was him for a second. And it's kind of like what you were saying in real life when worlds collide. We get a lot of the Telling the kids the fun stories from back in the old days. Uh, did you know your old man used to be called Yor, right? Y-O-R was Dan's nickname. And yeah, the Harley thing is sort of the central symbol almost of, of this whole episode because Dan still has his Harley, but when he when he brings Ziggy out to the garage to show him, He's horrified because he he technically still has it, but it's fallen apart. It's under a sheet. The wheel is off on a shelf somewhere. He's basically let it completely fall into disrepair, which is sort of symbolic of how Roseanne and Dan have let their whole adventurous, youthful energy fall away. Exactly. Under a tarp, rusting, full of cobwebs, and that you know, and when Ziggy presses him on it, he's like, I had other things, you know, I was trying to save up for a house, uh, you know, I had the kids and we just we didn't have time for the Harley so much anymore, as one does, like no, you know, no judgment there as one does. And Roseanne's like, yeah, but let's at least go out tonight. So they all decide to go out. They go out to a bar. We find out that Aunt Jackie used to have a big crush on Ziggy, um, but is now like, what did I even see in this guy? He's such a weirdo. Ziggy is very incredulous that she's a police officer. Right. There's a whole extended bit that he's like, what do you do now? I'm a cop. I don't believe you. And they go back and forth and he doesn't believe her until she handcuffs him to the radiator, whatever, which also just got me thinking again, as a contrast to that Dick Van Dyke show, 30 Rock, you know, Mad About You world, where it's like, we want to see people who are TV writers and comedians and whatnot. Jackie is a cop, because that's a job that you can get that pays you a, a living wage, you know, right. like it's, Again, and I'm pretty sure that was a plot line in the show, her getting that job and studying for the test and everything. 
And yeah, this show is really speaking to most people watching this don't have jobs that they aspired to have when they were kids. They have jobs that they have because they have them and they right. need to survive. Because they come upon a time in their life where they realize that they need to make more money than waiting tables or having whatever random retail job will give them. And so, but they didn't go to college. So they're like, all right, well, what am I going to do? I'll study for the police academy or I'll try to take this aptitude test and, you know, uh, let me get into some type of, of, civil service work or some type of work where I don't need to have a degree that I can make a living wage and have benefits and, you know, be able to provide for myself and or my family. Yeah. So I, nothing really happens at the bar except for that argument over how could Jackie possibly be a cop? And and it starts to look like maybe Ziggy is an asshole. But then it turns out he's not, you know, he just no, is. He's kind of the most wise of all of them in a sense. Um, I mean, other than his deadbeat dad racket. But yeah, he, you know, he's definitely living a different type of life and has this job that, you know, he, if he's a linesman or whatever for these different construction and uh, electric or whatever companies, then yeah, I mean, he, he does get to have that sort of traveling man kind of life. And so he offers to, you know, he's like, look, if the Harley's just going to sit there and rot and die. Like it doesn't deserve that death. You know, if you're not going to do anything with it, sell it to me and offers them a, a good, you know, a good price. And Dan's like, and so they come home and Dan tells Roseanne that he's going to sell the Harley to Ziggy. And this is where they have that fight. Like it's, they've come home from a night of drinking. So they're a little bit tipsy, although they're not playing it like super drunk. They're playing it like, you know, grownups are drunk, which is sometimes you just are a little tipsy. Um, and so they're having this argument in the kitchen as they're turning out and or in the house as they're turning out all the lights and getting ready for bed when they come home after the bar that night. And she's like, don't do it. It's the last little piece of our youth. youth. And yeah, so what? It's sitting out there and you're not using it. But if you want time to to use it and refurbish it, then like take that time. But don't give that up because I, I'm not ready to give that up. Like we used to be fun and I miss that. And he's like, but we need this money. Yeah, this is a pretty standard sort of debate that you might have with a partner or even within oneself, you know, where she's like, we used to be Dan and Roseanne, and now we're the Connors, right? Now we're just a family that goes to the other family's house once in a while. Like, we're just, we're not cool and exciting like we used to be. And he is pointing out, like, yeah, that, that we're not that age anymore. We have a different life and in our life now, the money from selling the bike would be helpful. It's not helpful to have it festering underneath a canvas. But she's like, yeah, but then by, by selling it, you're turning your back on part of our past. And I really related to this conflict because I'm sentimental about things all the time. I was talking to you about how I'm sentimental about throwing away my old microphones and my old hard drives, even though they don't work anymore and they don't serve any purpose. I just don't like the idea of taking these things that used to be like important to me and just chucking them in the garbage. You know? You've got to do the Marie Kondo thing. Of, but they do spark joy. Yeah. But of thanking it for the joy yeah. that it sparked in the in the time that you had it. You thank it for its usefulness and then okay. you can let it go. Interesting. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that is the conflict. And Dan almost decides to sell it 
And then he kind of doesn't have the heart to do it. Right? Yeah, he 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 does. He says, "Yep, I'm going to sell it." And then um, the next day, Ziggy comes back and has uh, two checks: one that is for half of it that he can cash now, and one that he can cash in three weeks. So Dan is there, and he's been in the garage pulling out all of the pieces that have come off of it and that he's stored in different places over the years. So he's got the fenders from the cupboard, and he and then while he was looking for things, he found some other piece and the wheel, and then. And he found his jacket, his big leather jacket that says you're mm-hmm. in like fire letters on the back of it. And he's talking to Ziggy and he just is like, ah, I can't. And he, gra- you know, he's like, he's looking at his jacket and he's just like, I can't, I can't sell it. And I'm, Roseanne I'm sorry. is melancholy throughout all of this. She's like, you would think he's, you know, handing over their dead baby or something, right. the way Roseanne is reacting to all of this. She's so on. upset. But Dan is conflicted about all of this. And Ziggy actually has a really good perspective, I think. He ultimately says something to the effect of, don't hang on to the past for pure nostalgia. The, the goal is to continue to live, you know, so don't hang on to the bike because you love it so much from the past and you can't let go of those memories. If you want to hang on to it, hang on to it because you still have the energy to, to do something with it. Yeah. He says something like there's only dust on the fenders or there's no dust on the fenders until you shut off the engine. And so that's his whole point. Like you don't have to live my life, but if you want to keep your bike, like if you want to keep your motorcycle, then do something with it. Don't just let it sit there on your bed, like your microphones and your hard drives and collect dust, like use them because that's what they're for. And by the way, that is Marie Kondo's whole thing. Like it, it served its usefulness. You can thank it for that usefulness and say goodbye. And that's kind of what this guy Ziggy is saying. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so he says, look, I, I'm going to call the, you know, uh, not Mrs., the baby mama, and tell her that I'm not going to be home for a few more days and let me help you fix this up. Yeah. So they fix up the bike. This is where I was a little incredulous financially, where they eventually unveil a really nice looking, new looking motorcycle with the nice paint job and everything. And I was just thinking, you know, this guy was was paying Dan in multiple installments for his used bike for his like old buddy discount, you know, sale. Where are they getting the money to do this like awesome refurbishment that now it looks like an episode of him my ride or something, <laughs> you know? Well, I think part of it is that they're saying the all of the pieces were there. Um, they just would need to do some cleaning, but they definitely had a new seat because the old seat was all like ripped up and they had a much nicer new seat. The other thing is, if you know anything about Harley's, what you saw on the ground was a completely different bike from the rebuilt bike at the oh, end. Sure. Yeah. So we get another case of this really isn't an old friend coming around to cause trouble or anything. He causes a little bit of sort of existential angst. But again, it's more about contemplation and maybe a little bit of recontextualizing. And ultimately, he has a very positive effect. And I think that he's kind of, he helps Dan and Rosie sort of come to a a middle ground, you know, in their conflict between like, are, are we stagnant and a bunch of old farts should we try to revert back to the old days he kind of gives them this third option 
that uh, kind of works out for everybody. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Sister, Sister. Sister, Sister, this is Season 4, Episode 7, Boy from the Hood. So we're moving ahead in time about six years. This is 1996. Okay. So this was definitely one I didn't mention when we were talking about Roseanne. I had a major crush on Darlene in Roseanne. Not so much at that time of the episode we were talking about, but later on when we were in high school, she's Sarah Gilbert's very close in age to us. And Tia and Tamara, I also had a crush on, I think. But yeah, lots of young boyhood crushes for me in this lineup. (laughs) I definitely liked Tia and Tamara. I wasn't huge into this show. We were already kind of too old for this kind of show when it was coming out. But I remember the reruns played on TBS for some stretch of time in the morning when I was getting ready for work. And I weirdly acclimated to it. I remember Chris, a kid from Kid and Play, was a cast member on this show for a while. And in general, they would have like like every other episode, there would be an R&B act or something that would perform for like the last five minutes. So there's a lot about this show that's like weirdly dated in interesting ways. Uh, So yeah, not a diehard fan, but I definitely had some relationship with it. Yeah, I I can say that I think episode or seasons one and two were more, you know, I was I was in early high school seasons one and two. So I was still watching shows. And that was, you know, one, I think that was yeah, I was I was home more, so I was I was watching more TV. Um, in the earlier days of this, I was surprised in this episode. I think you were too when the next door neighbor character Roger showed up, and he was like full on teenager. And I'm like, I thought he was a little kid. This was definitely a latter day Urkel type situation where it's like we've got a beefcake now, pretending to carry himself like a little dweeb. <laughs> yeah. So the premise of Sister Sister, we have another parent trap situation. I'm happy to say. After all of my belly aching about the idiocy and ludicrousness of all of our identical cousins' premises over the years, we now have a scientifically solid foundation for twins a TV that show. are actual twins. They are twins. They are identical twins. They and are there's two of them born of the same zygote in the same mother. It all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. But so Tia and Tamara were kind of like an answer to Mary-Kate and Ashley a little bit. People forget that they had this huge... They were like the third and fourth richest people on earth or something. Yeah, they were they had that direct to video and like Disney movie franchise thing where they were just raking it in and they were always playing, you know, sisters in sort of different random ways. Right. And so there was a market for twin stuff, you know, for fun teenage twin girls getting into little mishaps and having family-friendly fun. And so, yeah, Sister Sister is a parent trap type type premise where the sisters were separated. They found each other. They got the parents back together. That's your show, right? Well, and they were adopted. So the parents aren't their real parents, neither of them? Neither of them, I think. Yeah, because they don't, like the one has the, dad who's like you know he's the one with the big house and he's like a businessman and he adopted i think tamara and then tia has uh jack a 
I don't know what her name is in this series, but she's the mom, but she's not their actual mom. Okay. So yeah, this one starts out with what I assume is part of the language of this show. We get a Zach Morris style talking to the camera. I had completely forgotten that that was something that they did in this show. That I was between the like silly animations that they had and then the like just starting the show by talking to the camera and them like goofing on each other while the other one was talking to the camera. I was like, what is happening? It's very, yeah, it's like a Nickelodeon type energy. It's definitely, yeah, and also just a very mid-90s feel. But yeah, they're talking to the camera. They're laying out the premise of the episode, which is that one of them has a friend, Darnell, who's coming to town and they're excited. Right. So they live in Detroit and Lisa, that's who Jack A plays. Um, Lisa and Tia used to live in a more rough and tumble part of Detroit. And when the girls met each other at a mall and said, this is silly, we are sisters, we should live together. Tia and Lisa, her mom, moved from the like rougher part of Detroit to this nicer part where they live with Tamara and her dad in this big house. And so Lisa's old friend, who is Darnell's mom, and her son Darnell, who is Tia's like best friend from when they were little kids, are coming back into town. They'd moved away, they'd moved to Atlanta. But now they're, you know, they're teenagers. So he is so excited that her, you know, old friend is coming back into town and he shows up and it is like immediately putting the moves on Tamara. Yeah. Well, not to mention Tamara responds to his entrance by turning her face into a cartoon dog and doing like Ayuga and yes. having her eyes pop out of her head before we cut to the credit sequence. There's literal CGI cartoon effects. So it's a mutual thing that Tamara has the hots for him and vice versa. And what we find out when Tia and this guy get to sit down and sort of catch up and talk is that he has become a Lothario. He's a ladies man now. He is, to use Tia's words, he's a player. He's become a player. And um, she's not comfortable with him being a player and also wanting to get with her sister. And so she starts to try to keep them apart. And then the dad, um, uh, Tamara's dad, finds out and sees this connection between the two of them and is like, no, I don't like that. And then we get Jack Hay and Darnell's mom, who also happens to be Fresh Prince's mom. This is a tangled web we weave because as you were describing the premise of the show, I was realizing it's an awful lot like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We get this sort of like, you know, people from the wrong side of the tracks now moving in with the posh hoity-toity family and having to live that life. And yeah, we get Will Smith's mom from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is... Darnell's mom, who I guess is Lisa's like old friend. Right. They're old friends. And then we get a fun, funny little line from Roger who calls Darnell the Fresh Prince of Detroit, which is a nice little turnabout because we've got oh. 
Fresh Prince's mom there. But anyway, so they go out, Jack Hay and um, Fresh Prince's mom, they go out to have a night on the town. They're having a blast. They come home. It's the, you know, before the kids go off to school in the morning or before they're going out in the morning, it's super early. They're coming in and laughing and being loud and everything. And the dad has, you know, some words to say about them being out all night and being so loud and, and you know, whatever. And then he leaves and Fresh Prince's mom tells Jack, hey, that that man is judging you. And he, you know, he's judging you because you come from the hood and that's not okay. And so then we have this sort of central um, conflict developing, right? That Jack Hay feels judged and she feels like the reason the dad doesn't want Darnell hanging out with his daughter, Tamara, is that Darnell also comes from the wrong side of the tracks and so or from the wrong neighborhood or whatever. And so the dad is judging him as well. And so we get Jack Hay continually saying like, no, ignoring the warning signs, but saying that this guy is okay. Well, so Darnell says, we're going to go to a party with my old crew in the old neighborhood. It's going to be super fun. And he is like, no, we're not doing that. We're not going. And Tamara's like, no, I'm going. This is happening. Now, I just was thinking about the weirdness of having your platonic friend tell you, I want to bang your identical sibling. Yeah. And they never, I thought that was going to be a thing. Like she looks just like me. Why don't you think of her as a sister? Yeah. Or, you know, or maybe we were going to get a little bit of jealousy, but none of that came to fruition. There was none of that. It was like, they didn't, they just, it it was like, they're two separate people. Obviously he's going to be attracted to her and think of you as a friend. And yeah, no that more. was a little bizarre. She uses the word fine to describe Tamara to Tia. And it's just understood that he and Tia have been like buds forever. So it was just an interesting thing that, yeah, wouldn't you feel a little strange about your friend saying that? But I mean, it also is, isn't it kind of nice that like, I mean, if for him anyway, that he can, he's got, because they're twins, he can sort of separate like, oh, I have all of this like wonderful, like all these wonderful memories and history with this one girl. And she's like my sister. And also now she's grown up to be hot, but like, I can't separate that from the fact that, you know, she's my sister. And now, oh, look, she's got a, she's got a sister. That girl's fine. I don't have any of the memories uh, and nostalgia there, but who knows? But so they're all heading to the party. Somewhere along the line, the mom and the aunt do a risky business bit, which I just wanted to point out because that's at least the second explicit reference to risky business we've had on the podcast because Zach and his friends do that on Saved by the Bell when when they're left alone at Screech's house. Oh, because they do that little like lip synky thing? They both put on sunglasses and look at the camera and yeah, do some sort of like dancey thing. The parents are very sitcom-y in this. Yes. That was my overall takeaway. The dad is Mike Hanford from It, if you're a fan of the 90s version of It. He just, you know, he's a perfectly normal, boring, nice dad, like you would want him to be. But just the way he carries himself and everything is just very floppy and goofy. And just the whole characterization of the parents Like I said, it reminds you of something that would be on Disney Channel or Nickelodeon. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. So, so Tia and Tamara, Tamara has said to her dad that she's not going to go to this party. 
but they go anyway and they're at the party and just as foretold, like Tia thought he was going to, he puts the moves on Tamara and tries to get her to leave the party to go to the empty apartment next door. And the party is a den of sin. It is a laughably like, all right, let's see. It's a family sitcom, so we can't actually show anybody doing anything illicit. So how do we communicate that this is a den of sin? Red lighting, uh, lots of like boys and girls kind of like sitting on each other's laps and stuff and incense to make the room look smoky. So it makes you think smoke, even though we can't show people smoking or anything. It just right. you get red lighting and smokiness. And there's music pumping and everybody's dancing really close. There's couples on the couch and the chair that look like they're making out. They're all, yeah. you know... Come, you know, up inside, you know, all wrapped around each other. And when eventually the parents do arrive, there is a girl and a guy making out on a couch that they mistake yes. for Tia, but it's not. Um, and so, yeah, so they're they're there, they're at the party, they're having an okay time until um, Darnell propositions Tamara, and she's like. I'm not interested. And Tia tries to get in the way and is like, no, no, no. And Tamara's like, I can take care of myself. And then she gets in Darnell's face and tells him where he can shove it. Yeah. Now, until this moment, I had been kind of giving Darnell the benefit of the doubt because I felt like the show was forgetting to show us what his actual dynamic was with Tamara. Like, we see him talking about her to Tia and kind of being like, she's fine, man. But like, we don't get to see, do, do they have a connection? It, you know, like he's, he's a teenager. It's okay for him to be a little horny. He can still be a good guy. Like it, it we were assuming that he was a bad guy. And so going into this, I'm thinking the show isn't giving this character a fair shake. We don't get to see what his relationship is with her. Until we do, and he's bad. Right. And I think that, I mean, they do a little bit because that day that they go and spend the day together, the three of them, um, Tia, Tamara, and Darnell, it all happens off camera. So we only get it when they're back in the house, when they're back in the house telling us about it. So we get that end of the evening, you know, after they've been out all day and Tia's complaining that they ditched her. They kept trying to ditch her because they were trying to go off and be by themselves. And then the next day they're talking at the breakfast table and that's uh, Tia and, uh, and Darnell are talking at the breakfast table. And that's when Darnell is like, yeah, I got a lot of honeys back in, in Atlanta yeah. and reveals himself to be this guy that is like, you know, has a lot of girls that he's sort of stringing along. And it was, it was that that made Tia change her oh, mind. Definitely. We, we get that he has that, aspect to him but you never know with boys of that age like that could be a bluster i was willing to say again to give him the benefit of the doubt and say oh i got a lot of honeys on my jock or whatever <laughs> but still be kind of a nice guy that that is willing to to take things at at her pace or whatever right. it could be like that fresh prince episode we talked about where all of the guys who were sitting around talking about how they lost their virginity like three of them had, or two out of the three of them had made up stories right but no it turns out to be this very sort of abc family esque kind of black and white confrontation where he's 
a villain and he's basically like you need to go into that room and bang me or else you're just a little baby and you know yeah you have to leave with me otherwise there's something wrong with you and then the two girls kind of gang up on him and you know call him like a tater head or something I don't know what did they call him something about I don't know something about like the shape of his head they were making fun of and so then he and then and everybody's standing around watching you know this like insult kind of battle go back and forth and uh and then he you know says mean things back and then they they double down and he leaves um he's like whatever i didn't want to even be here with you guys anyway so he leaves and the girls are like yay we win oh wait he was our ride and now they don't have a way to get home. So then the next scene we see is after the commercial break, the girls are locked in the bed. Ba- they've locked themselves in the bathroom. They're, you know, people are banging on the door and wanting to pee. And they're like, no, we're still in here, you know, trying to like buy themselves some time to figure out what to do because they aren't supposed to be there. So they can't call parents and they you know he was their ride meanwhile we've had roger trying to break into the party multiple times so he i think eventually goes back to uh lisa and ray who are the parents and tell them look you gotta get over here because the the girls are like locked in the bathroom or whatever and they don't have a ride home and i can't get in and da 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 so the parents arrive and they see, you know, the den of sin, like you said, and they're looking for the girls. And as they're looking for the girls, uh, Darnell shows back up with a paper bag filled with beverages. And he's like, hey, everybody, I got more drinks. And everyone's like, yeah. And then they bust him. And he's like, what? What? I, I had to do something. Those girls made me look bad in front of my crew. So I had to get drinks. So I was cool again. Yeah, no, that that's what you do. Uh, yeah, so the parents and Roger rescue them. They reward Roger by the two of them kissing him on the cheek simultaneously. And it got me thinking, is Roger like their Lenny and Squiggy sort of rolled into one? Yes. He's like this little weirdo that's just perpetually horny for them. And they kind of, like I said, reward him for his good deeds once in a while with a kiss on the cheek. Right. So yeah, they all go home. I was thinking it's just unfortunate, again, the show seems to be geared for kids, and that's fine. I felt like these characters are old enough that they could have had a little bit more nuance if they wanted to. Yes. It didn't have to be any sort of sexual or any sort of indiscretion is automatically like, hey, man, I'm not a chicken. You're a turkey. I'm going to tell my dad kind of thing. You know, like right. they they could have entertained the notion of the one of them, you know, being into it a little bit because, of course, they're right to stand up to him, like trying to basically rape her. Like, that's not okay. He's trying to rape her. He wanted her to be into it, yeah, too. Yeah, to pressure her. Yeah. Yeah, but- Again, they just, they make it so clean and black and white and sort of, you know, just like say no to everything. They do. But the thing that they, that they do kind of pull it around to is the, uh, Tamara gets mad at her dad for showing up and is like, you can't do this. You don't get to just like show up at a party and drag me out because you're worried that I'm going to make bad decisions. We're okay. Like we took care of it. Like we fended off the guy. 
I, you know, I, and I told Tia in that moment, I could fend him off by myself. And I did. And I was glad she was here. And that was great. And then, and so the dad gets scolded. I mean, the parents both, but the dad, most of all, gets scolded for coming to try to rescue his daughter because they're like, we can take care of ourselves. Like I can do this and I don't need you for every little thing. And you've got to trust me that I can handle this and that you've raised me so that I'm going to make my own decisions. And when I want to say no, I'm going to say no. So that was a good, I thought that was a nice way to kind of tie a, a bow on on the lesson of the show and not make it too much of, oh, you know, everybody's you know, happy because dad came to rescue. Well, it's the same story as DJ yeah. in our losing virginity, right? Right, exactly. And same, right, ABC. This is the like same network, same sort of thing, right? But Roger doesn't get the shit. Right. Roger showing up and just being there and trying to make sure that the girls are okay. He gets the kiss on the cheek because that's all right. Like he's their age. He's allowed to look out for them. And that's a big difference from where before they were like, no, I'm happy to have my dad help me out, but I want this little nerdy kid to go away. So we have shifted in terms of who our, who we're thankful for. Yeah. Anyway, shall we move on to scrubs? Scrubs season two, episode 22. We get another season finale. Dick Van Dyke was the season finale. And Scrubs, this is season two, season finale. Yeah, my dream job, it's called. I was not into Scrubs when it was on. Uh, what What's your take on Scrubs? So I loved Scrubs. That was a that was a definite every single week. It was TiVo'd. I watched it. I loved that show. Um, I fell off towards the end because there were those last few seasons that had like totally different people in the cast. Like when Dave Franco, I think, joined the cast at some point. Like, no, I was gone by then. I wasn't watching anymore. But definitely in those like first like six seasons, I think, if not a, maybe a, a few more, I this was an always watch show for me. I thought it was very funny. The guy who plays Dr. Cox has that snappy delivery that I like. And this is also an early adopter of that thing that you talk about with um, early 2000s TV shows where they have those like quick cutaways yes. to imaginary things happening or what a person, you know, like a, like a daydream second, you know, happening. This show did that. And so I was really into this show. Yeah, it definitely seems of a particular time. You mentioned when we were talking about watching Ellie, that that was going on Malcolm in the Middle as sort of a role model. And that was a show that I also didn't really watch. And yet, I feel like I can see that influence in this, because this is 2001, I think. So this would be contemporaneous with The Office and Curb Your Enthusiasm. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't really know about the office and curb your enthusiasm, I think. So yeah, stuff this like- show started in 01. This episode in particular is 03. Okay. You see how that sort of handheld, more drifty style that would uh, also be in 30 Rock and stuff like that. This didn't have that. This was more locked down, but cinematic, but still sort of 90s-ish and not full, you know, panoramic. It it reminded me a lot of the vibe of Malcolm in the Middle. But it also just got me thinking, you know, we talk about this every time. The single camera shows really are fundamentally different. And the whole, it's not just about the technicalities of how they make them. It really changes 
the storytelling. And so you think about something like Seinfeld that did have all those interlocking stories and was sort of complicated. It still had to do at its basis. We're going to have a scene with certain characters in a certain location. We can do some sort of montage thing once in a while, but that's not really what this show is. This show is a little play being performed in front of a studio audience. And you see with these shows like Scrubs, it's not that. Like these voiceovers that are weaving together all these different scenes, and there's so much happening. And like you said, the little flashbacks and flash forwards. And it's just fundamentally a different kind of storytelling than what we see in you know, Roseanne or, or any one of these multicam sitcoms. Yeah. And we haven't done Scrubs before. The main character is JD, John Dorian. And uh, he and most of the rest of the cast are first year, now this year, second year residents in a residency program, right? So they're trying to become doctors and they're on their journey and they work at this hospital called Sacred Heart Hospital. And you've got the like the chief of medicine, who's this old grumpy guy named Dr. Kelso. And then you've got like guy who's in charge of all the residents who is a fully fledged doctor and that's Dr. Cox. And then you've got a couple of nurses that are in the main cast as well, Carla and and I don't remember the other woman's name. So you've got JD Turk and Elliot. They're the med students in their residency and you've got Carla and the old the uh, the other nurse that's a little bit older and then you've got Dr. Cox and Dr. Kelso and that's the main cast and then you've got a few other people like in this episode we get Dr. Cox's ex-wife who's also on the board of the hospital her name's Jordan and um, they've just had a baby together and so uh, even though that even though they're exes Uh, and so that's sort of an ongoing thing but yeah the the premise of the show is that, but it's all kind of narrated by JD, who is played by Zach Braff, the main character of the show. And he has these fantastical visions. So when somebody says something to him, he'll have a little mini daydream and it'll be something silly. So for example, in this, uh, somebody mentions that being a doctor was his dream job. And he has a little flash of this daydream to his actual dream job which is being like the king of chocolate or something. Yeah, chocolate supervisor, I think. Right. And everything is around him has turned into chocolate and he keeps wanting to it's eat pieces of it. Very similar to when Homer Simpson is told by the German businessmen that they come from the land of chocolate. And Homer has a daydream similar to this where he takes a bite of a live chocolate pig. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So I think they use this idea to have all these little fantastical elements as well. And then one of the characters that I hadn't mentioned yet was the janitor who um, we're in the second season of this show. But in the first season, the idea behind the janitor was that he was a hallucination that only JD saw. And so if you watch that first season, they are only ever interacting with each other. And still in this episode, you see that the the janitor isn't interacting with anyone else. They just have these conversations with each other and the janitor is always giving him a hard time. So yeah, we. I'm not sure. My, my understanding was that that idea kind of went away at the end of the first season, but maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it continued into season two. Uh, it's like how on Sesame Street, they eventually had Snuffleupagus be seen by the rest of the characters. Right. Even though he, he was supposed to be Big Bird's imaginary yeah. friend. But uh, yeah, like I was saying, there's a lot going on in this because of just the nature of this kind of show. I feel like there's 
less to sort of sink our teeth into in terms of the main story. It's Ryan Reynolds showing up as their old friend from college, yeah. right? And he's just he's, he's kind of a uh, uh, you might you might call him a, a Ryan Reynolds type. Character. I mean, how is this guy so freaking handsome his whole life? Every single thing you want to talk about your girl crushes in every show like this dude, since he was on that Nickelodeon show 15 mm. has been cute. Like my entire life has been, oh, there's that guy from 15. Oh, there's that guy and two girls, you know, two guys, a girl in a pizza place and just keeps getting more handsome. I will never understand it. He's got amazing genes. But yes, he's playing the same character he always plays, which is uh, sort of wealthy. I don't have to give a shit. And also I'm sarcastic and generally no more than everybody sort of Zach Morris character. Yeah, he's a cad. He's a kind of wild man, but in a certain way, he's got that very... Sort of, you know, a little pinch of the Jim Carrey uh, weirdness in the way he talks, but he's very handsome, like you said. And uh, his way of sort of throwing a wrench into things is he's going to encourage JD and Turk to live it up in various ways, including drinking when they're on call. Well, and I think that is what, you know, the idea behind the show is that he isn't really encouraging, he's not encouraging them too hard at all. He is like Ziggy in Roseanne representing their nostalgia for not being tied down by monotonous grown-up things. And the we get at the beginning of this episode that um an, a voiceover where JD's talking about by the end of your second year of residency it's the monotony has set in because there's so much that's the same day after day after day after day, uh, you know, checking on patients and doing, you know, it's just the same thing day after day. So they have this little montage of them, of Elliot, Turk and JD in the elevator in the hospital every single day, kind of different scrubs, you know, just sort of staring and waiting for the ding, you know, till they start it all over again. But also telling themselves that this is their dream job. Right. So telling themselves that this is their dream job, but also sort of feeling the monotony of of adult life and being so busy at work that when you're done, you don't, you just want to sleep. Like, even though they're still young, you know, <laughs> they're still in their 20s. He so this Ryan Reynolds, his name is Spence in this show. He he comes into town because Two of their friends from um, college are getting married. Two of their fraternity brothers are getting married. And so we get a little fun gay panic moment where they're like, oh, they're getting married to each other. Oh, very lame. Yeah. Gay panic moment where they all like sort of hang their heads in shame at the idea that two of their frat brothers are gay for each other. Yeah. So weird. Anyway, so then we move, um, you know, Spence is, is representing this time of, you, you know, we used to go out, we used to have fun. We find out he's an investment banker. So he, you know, is very well off and he has a bit more free time than they do. Although, that's not my experience in knowing investment bankers that they necessarily have a lot of free time. But he is, whatever he is doing, he's able to still kind of party hard. So he's like, hey, let's, you know, I'm in town. Let's, you know, 
let's do the thing. Like, let's go out. And the first night they're like, eh, no, you know, we, we can go out, but we can't really drink. Cause you know, we're, we've got, we got to be up early tomorrow. And so he's like, all right, well, whatever, that's fine. They end up drinking anyway. And then they all hook themselves up to an IV to like best hangover cure ever. So they had their IV and then they are able to work the next day and it's fine. And then that night he's like, let's go out again. And they're like, no, for real though, we can't um, because we're on call. So um, they say, all right, well, we'll have fun without drinking. So they go out and they sneak into somebody's hot tub in their backyard and they're having a soak and they're like, isn't this great? This is the life. But then the people come home and they get caught and I'm sure through Ryan Reynolds' amazing charisma or end up end up hanging out with the couple who owns the hot tub and drinking beers in the hot tub. So something happened off camera that we didn't, you know, that we don't see, but then in the next shot, they're all in the hot tub with this couple drinking beers and just having a good time. Yeah. And so not only are they on call, but it's like this sort of comically specific chain of events that would have to happen for them to get called into work. Cause he's like, you know, basically there would need to be some sort of catastrophe, like some sort of mass casualty event. And then both doctors, you know, on duty would need to be incapacitated or something, but all, but that whole scenario happens. There's right. like some sort of disaster that results in a bunch of people being rushed to the hospital. And then one of the dumb doctors like runs and tackles the other or something. And so they're, they both can't, Yeah. So JD and Turk get beeped and have to go into work and they've been drinking. Yeah. And so Dr. Cox can tell and says, go home. You know, you're not fit for duty. He's always yelling at them. Dr. Cox is John McGinley, one of the Bobs from Office Space, uh, just amazing character actor. And you know, I, I didn't watch Scrubs a lot, but I like his character. I like his weird sort of tough love energy. And yeah, he tells them, go home. Truthfully, I might argue the A story in this episode really is his pregnancy thing with his, whoever that other character Jordan, is. Jordan, his, his ex-wife. Uh, screen time wise, when you get rid of everything that's John McGinley and that lady and their pregnancy stuff... And whatever's going on with Elliot and Dr. Kelso, she has a scene where she stabs him in the face with a needle. Well, she loses grip on her needle and it flies through the air and hits him. Sure. I'm just saying the the plot that we're trying to focus on with Ryan Reynolds showing up and sort of getting them into trouble is pretty threadbare. You know, that's that's basically what happens like they friend in town let's go out oh we drank too much okay well iv it oh let's go out again we're gonna be good tonight just kidding we're not gonna be good and now we're fucked well and like you said when they confront ryan reynolds he points out i didn't really make you do this like i was doing it because i could afford to jerk around that night if i had a big meeting the next day i would be going to sleep early that's right ask me he's like i have a presentation on thursday ask me if i want to go out wednesday night no i have a presentation on thursday he's like i don't have to twist your arm you're miserable all you're doing is complaining about how miserable you are about your monotonous job so you wanted to do this like you're making your own choices here yeah so i guess he represents you know he's he's not quite as 
sort of nefarious as the guy in Sister Sister. But it's another one of these, like somebody shows up and now we have to think about our lives. If anything, maybe he's most similar to the Roseanne guy. Yeah, he's a lot like the Ziggy character, but yet they're all younger. So he doesn't really have any wisdom to impart. He's just like, dudes, you need to be like, if you're, if you want to be a fucking grown up, make good decisions. And so that's like JD's lesson that he learns in this episode. And if you watch Scrubs, he has like a moral or a lesson that he kind of learns or that he takes away from another person learning a lesson yeah. kind of in, in in every episode. He wants to be Daniel Stern in Wonder Years or Bob Saget in How I Met Your Mother. You yeah. know, he wants to have a wise a little monologue narrating the last two minutes or so of every show. Yeah, for sure. Um, Which kind of speaks to what we know about him in real life, which is egomaniac. Uh, (laughs) So his whole takeaway is, you know, it's, I'm doing, I am doing what I, what was my dream job. This is important. And if I want to be a grown up, I have to have perseverance, fortitude, and sacrifice. And that's what I need to do. And now I'm kind of moving into, so we're getting this sort of same idea that we had in Roseanne, except for this is when the decision to become the more boring grown up person is happening. Whereas in Roseanne, it's already happened. And they're like, hey, we made this decision and we didn't even realize it, what happened. So this is the moment where he is deciding that he's going to be more responsible going forward. Yeah. Um, looking back on all of these, I think Roseanne is is the one for me. You know, I think they all have that fun time capsule aspect to them. Sister Sister has that ABC family vibe, that kind of corny 90s family sitcom thing, which is sort of, you know, why we do the podcast in the first place. You know, we like those, we like that vibe. Dick Van Dyke, same deal. Hadn't seen that in decades. And of course, you know, getting to catch up with 25-year-old Mary Tyler Moore, you know, absolutely. Scrubs, like I keep saying, even the ones that I like, like 30 Rock or Shit's Creek, hopping into the single camera shows like this on the podcast, it's always hard. It's They don't flow with the other ones as as well. And so- with Scrubs being one that I wasn't as familiar with in general, you know, I, I didn't jive with it as much. But Roseanne, yeah, you get all of those, all, all of that ennui of middle age that we're experiencing ourselves and just all of those fun characterizations, John Goodman, Metcalf, like we were saying. That's the MVP for me in terms of what I liked best. And yeah, this was an interesting one because they all share a lot of those story beats, but have sort of different takeaways. Sometimes it's sort of about like letting go of toxic people. Sometimes it's just about sort of embracing like the change in your circumstances. 
you know, I was expecting there to be more of like, well, your success can be alienating to other people, but there wasn't that much of that. No, and none of these, and I think when we were looking at this trope in particular, we were, there were, there are definitely examples of this trope that's more like a toxic friend comes into town and screws everything up or a, um, or like some sort of high drama that comes from this realization that time passes. And all of these didn't really, they didn't have either of those aspects of this trope. It was more just this, ah, thing that we all really feel, which is, man, I'd like to kind of remember this time that was great and maybe recapture it. Oh, that recapturing doesn't exactly work, but it that's not necessarily bad. And I don't have to, just like we were talking about at the beginning, we don't have to forget or never be friends with old friends again. No, it, you know, this isn't an instance of high drama. This is more an instance of what life is really like, which is you have nostalgia for your past and you also grow and change. And the two things don't have to be in conflict. They can cause you a little conflict, but it's an easily resolvable thing because we're all growing and changing and that's fine. I have to say my MVP is Dick Van Dyke show. You know, you mentioned like, oh, is this kind of the sitcom y version of some of these old the so and so show? And and I think we definitely allowed, like through the passing of time, the tropes got stale. Watching the tropes in their infancy in these old black and white shows. For me, it's not just nostalgia because it's like before I would even be nostalgic for, there's something innocent about it and there's something real about it, right? Because they aren't trying to outdo something else. They aren't trying to take a trope or take a situation in life and make it new again. They're just trying to show this life situation and it doesn't have to be dramatic and everybody can still learn a lesson and it can still be a nice story. I really appreciate that. Like I appreciated that so much in that Andy Griffith show when it was, you know, country versus city and they didn't make it so contentious. There's just something nice about that. And I like it. Most of us are not trying to seek out conflict that make, makes life hard. Yeah. So you're looking for the, you know, the the simplest solution to solve a problem. And in these older sitcoms where that's exactly what they do, because it was the first time or for one of the first few times they were doing it and they weren't trying to outdo something that had already been done. It's nice. It is real. I liked it. Yeah. Not going to get an argument from me. Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, all those other characters. Uh, yeah, amazing. So much for the old friends coming to town and having us rethink our lives. What are we talking about next week? Next week, Boris, you'll need to get your borscht in order because we are going back to the Cold War. We're going to start with Mr. Ed. We're going to do Season 6, Episode 3, Cold Finger. Golden Girls, Season 3, Episode 6, Letter to Mr. Gorbachev. Head of the Class, Season 3, Episode 4, Mission to Moscow. It's a two-parter, so it's Episode 3 and 4, but it's aired all in one hour. And then Boy Meets World, 
Also, season three, episode 19, I was a teenage spy. That's right. That promises to be a very historically enlightening episode. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 